Luke 1, 26 through 45. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your will, according to your word. And the angel of the Lord And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from from the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Christiana. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise for this word. We give you praise for the truth. Lord, most of us have heard this story many times. I pray, Holy Spirit, that this morning we might see it freshly and we might re-engage what it means that you have entered this world to bring glory and to eradicate evil. Amen. I love, um, well, let me just recap where we've been. Most, many of you were here last week, but this is our second week of Advent. So last week we saw Gabriel, uh, his announcement to Zechariah in the temple. And remember, Zechariah had two prayers, presumably, that he'd been praying. One, longing for a child. They, Elizabeth was barren. They were old in their age. And secondly, um, and in that moment, most likely, in the temple, praying for God's redeeming of Israel. Uh, And he was praying that this would happen. And Gabriel comes into the temple and announces a plan, announces that there will be a path for this to happen through the son John. And so for Zechariah, his two prayers really became one. And we talked about last week that oftentimes the way God answers our prayer personally and our prayers for redemption really do line up, but it takes faith. We have to really understand that God is using us 
for his plan of redemption. And this morning, we see kind of the next phase. Gabriel goes to Mary, and it's a very sweet story. And most of us have, like I said in our prayer, we know it. We know what happened. Um, but it's, it's quite profound, and it's quite different from Zechariah. And so we're going to look at the situation with Mary and unpack that. And I want, I want to draw our attention to the song we just sang. I, I love that song because it's imaginative, it, but it's right. Like it's, a, it's picturing Mary having a conversation with Eve. I, I think for most of us, if we're honest, we think, why did they eat the fruit? Right? Why would you do that? And yet, it's not right of us to think that way. Not one of you in this room probably could have withstood that temptation, right? We need to see what Eve did, and we're sad, and we're broken, and, and she is guilty of eating the fruit, she and Adam. But there is this sense of compassion, uh, of the shame and the brokenness that happened. And yet, in the garden, remember when God is walking in the cool of the day, and remember in the Trinity, it's Jesus who is the one that has the body, but the Trinity, triune God, is in the, in the garden, and he has compassion on them, and he proclaims that there will be a son born to Eve that one day would crush the head of that serpent. That is the context. That is the picture of Mary's situation that Mary recognizes and by, the end of, by her song, which we'll get to at the end of our discussion, that there is something huge happening far beyond just her carrying a child for nine months. God's plan of rescue is taking shape right before her eyes and with her involvement. And so in that song, we're, we're sort of invited in to see the entire plan of redemption. And we're invited in to join with Mary to see that this is something that is huge. This is something that will conquer evil. And so what I want to ask you this morning is when you think about Advent and you think about what your role is in the Christian life. Do you see yourself as having a place of conquering evil? Like, do you see that as part of your story? Where are you as a Christian? Are you on the sideline? Are you on the bench? Or do you believe that God has called you, like Mary, to in some way stand on the neck of evil, to be involved in the crushing of the head of the serpent? Because I want you to know, we talked about it last week with Die Hard. I heard some of the college students watch Die Hard. How was it? Christmas movie? I don't know. Okay. But it shows us that there is evil. And I want you to know right now, Satan has demised, has um, planned your demise. He has a book on you. And if it's to be a boring Christian, then he's winning. If it's to take you out, to make you doubt your faith, if it's to destroy a relationship, your life, through addiction, whatever that plan is, he has that plan. Are you willing to engage the story that God has a plan for you to crush him? That's the goal this morning, to begin to see how Mary responds to her call and how we can partner in that same process. So that's what I want to look at this morning. Uh, how does Mary receive this news and respond? She is a picture of of beautiful faith. So let's dive in. The first thing we're going to look at is the qualification for the plan. Um, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city in Galilee named Nazareth. It's interesting because the image we chose for the front, and it's, it's not, we just were like, hey, let's find a great picture. So Ronnie and I, we partnered 
found this image. And as I was preparing the sermon more, I thought, this image is interesting. It's kind of what we think of. We picture Mary in a bedroom. I'm not sure if they had bedrooms. Like, I don't think each child had a, an American bedroom. But that's what we picture. We just picture this angel sort of hovering, right? And maybe that's what happened, but I like the way Luke tells it. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city. Like he had, he had like, here's where you're going. You're going to Galilee. And the city is named Nazareth. And if you'll remember in John, when we studied the calling of Nathaniel, remember what Nathaniel said? Does anything good come out of Nazareth? So there's this kind of scorn. You almost wonder what Gabriel thought um, when that was his marching orders. And, and I just want to say that Mary is not qualified in the world's eyes to be the mother of the Messiah. Luther talks about in his commentary that you would, the world would probably have imagined maybe the daughter of Caiaphas, the high priest, maybe some sort of wealthy woman who had people attending to her. Uh, of course, there would have been scorn and unbelief, but um, I would argue that Mary was chosen not because of what she had done in her past leading up to this, but more precisely because of the kind of mother she would be. Her job was not to simply have the baby. Her job was to raise Jesus. And that's a lot to do. And, and, and the primary disposition she has is humility. Um, there's a book by Dan Allender called, and you know I like Dan Allender, Anyway, although I've not read this book, I know some of you may have, How Children Raise Parents. I think Emily's read this. It's a great book. I'm going to just read you the blurb. We often realize that we, what we learn as much from, or that we learn as much from our children as they learn from us. So why don't parents approach the task of child rearing as a learning experience rather than as a mandate to make sure their kids succeed? To reduce the pressure and enjoy greater closeness in your family, Turn your parenting upside down by allowing God to use your children to help you grow up. Imagine what would happen if you began to prize what you're being taught by your child's quirks, failures, and normal childhood dilemmas, rather than worrying about whether you're doing everything right as a parent. Now you can let go of the pressure to make sure your children succeed and instead learn to grow into spiritual maturity by listening to your children. I guess I could take that to heart, right? Coleman tries to teach me spiritual maturity. I was meditating on this this week. What would it have been like to have Jesus? He doesn't have any, he has no quirks. Like what would that have been like for a young woman to have Jesus as her child? We know like the only snippet we get from the Bible is when he's 12 and he's lost. Remember? And they, they've left separately from each other. Joseph and Mary have left from Jerusalem to head back home and they realize, I guess, that night when they come to camp, he's not with them, and they have to head back. And where do they find him? He's in the temple, like teaching the religious leaders about the Bible. And he looks at them, he says, where did you, this is my father's house. Like, where did you think I would be? Not, not condescending, but just teaching them. But how much more in his attuning to Mary, in his caring for her, you just wonder how gracious was it for Mary to be given this child to sanctify her, the glory that he must have brought to her life. 
How beautiful is that? What is the qualification Mary has? It's that she will one day, someday, have the blood of Christ covering her. And in the meantime, she's longing for that, just like the rest of us. But she has another aspect of her disposition, and that is her humility. I want us to look at her response when Gabriel shows up. When Gabriel shows up in the temple with Zechariah, he probably should not have been freaked out. He probably should have said, okay, you're here. I'm the priest. I'm doing the most holy thing on planet Earth right now in the most holy place a priest is allowed to go because we aren't to go into the holiest of holies at this moment. So here we are. I'm doing this service. And oh, there you are, Gabriel. I was wondering which angel God would send. I'm glad it's you. No. Zechariah is absolutely undone. Mary, Gabriel does say, do not be afraid. But she's not afraid. In verse 28, he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And listen to what Luke tells us. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Are you, like, that's amazing. Like, it's not that there's an angel who's come into her presence that's causing her consternation. It's that the angel says these words, Oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. Are you able to receive those words? Can God look you in the eye through an angel, through Jesus, and say to you, you are favored the Lord is with you. How do you receive that information? I think, first of all, I hope you'll recognize it's true of you. That if you are in Christ, you are favored. That if you are in Christ, we know from the beginning of time, you are numbered among God's people, and he came with a plan to rescue you. If you are in Christ, there is a mission that you have been called to. A mission to give your life for Jesus, a mission to be a disciple, right? These are things we believe. Your primary function in that role will be to step on the neck of evil. That is, Christians go in to the problems the world run out from, into relationship, into broken places, into unjust situations. That is your calling. And for Mary, her qualification and your qualification is not well, you've done great for the first 17 years of your life, so God, he had looked at eight or nine or 10 different candidates, and she won. God had favored her from the beginning. God had created her for this role, and she had the humility to hear those words and have consternation. I love that. She was, like, she could, she was trying to discern what that might mean. And so, my question for you is this, do you struggle with this? I think there's two responses to you are favored. Either, of course I'm favored, I know. I've heard the theology, justification by faith. Ah, I want you to struggle a little bit. Please, just a little. Not because that doctrine isn't true, but because there needs to be a sense in which it's profound. But I don't want you to struggle in such a way that you don't believe it. Do you believe God loves you do you believe God has called you into this mission? And do you be believe God says to you, you are favored? If so, the, the proof of that will be this. You will accept 
the plan. That's our second point. You will begin to accept the plan as Mary did. Um, Let me tell you what the plan is. The angel begins to talk to her again. Gabriel, verse 30, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And listen to Mary's question. How will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answers her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Have you ever wondered, like, she's betrothed to Joseph. Couldn't it be that they would have a child and God would say, that child that you and Joseph conceive will be? Like, why did her mind immediately assume this would happen to her prior to Joseph? I'm just, I don't know the answer. I just think it's profound that she knows I'm a virgin and I will conceive and I can see that that's a mystery. But I wonder if there's this part of her faith that says, I also recognize that's the only way for holiness to come into our world is if someone is born not tainted by the sin of Adam and she's hearing this pronouncement and she asks how it's gonna happen. And I love, and this is, if you're gonna tattoo anything on your body, this would be a top one. Verse 38, just tattoo this, starting with the quotes. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She accepts the plan. That is one of those verses you read and you glaze right over. Francis Schaeffer is the one who helped me begin to really embrace the meaning behind those words. He calls it active passivity. Because Mary has just been told maybe the most disruptive and crazy news of her entire, it changed her life right before her eyes. And she says, may it be, I am the servant of the Lord. May it be according to your word. Now, it's important that you think about that. Mary has a plan. She's she's engaged. She's got it all figured out. Her husband, Joseph, is a carpenter or her uh, fiance. I don't know if that's what you would call him at that point. Um, we were watching a show on the Amish. The Amish have that kind of mystique about them because they live sort of like 100 years ago and um, it was on front line. We were just watching this as a family. But one of the things one of the interviewed Amish people said is about eighth grade, we leave high school and we have our job and we know where we're gonna be within like 25 miles for the rest of our lives. Like it's already done. And so for us as Americans, we kind of can take news pretty easily. We can hear that the company got bought out and you're moving across the country. We can kind of metabolize that a little bit more easily. For Mary to be told that what her plans are are completely done, and not only that, she's gonna be pregnant in a town that's tinier than Stillwater. And people are gonna know you're not married. And they're gonna scoff at you. Like, and even though it's not sin, she's gonna feel shame and contempt, just like Elizabeth felt for being barren, right? She's gonna feel the reproach of her culture. And yet she responds on the front end by saying, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. 
Let it be to me according to your word. How can she do that? Um, I remember I used this illustration in the past. It just helps me. I remember watching the movie Jumanji. Just kind of give you a breather. Remember Jumanji? The, the animals come to life in the game. I actually read that book because I love the artwork, and then they made the movie with Robin Williams. They made a newer one that I'm not going to watch. Um, but in the one with Robin Williams, which is the best one because it's Robin Williams, there's just that, the point is the game has a sound to it. It's the African jungle, and there's a drum beat, right? Remember this? And, if you, and the kid who hears it, it's like a construction site, and he hears the drum. Boom, boom, boom. Do you hear the drum? Like that's, and, and not everybody could hear it. Like most people couldn't, but if you could hear it, you could play the game. And if you play the game, you're invited into this extreme, exciting, crazy world where animals are going to come in and rhinoceroses are going to run through your home and elephants and, and like mosquitoes are going to bite you. And, and that was exciting. That's a fun game. Does anyone want to play that game? That would work for RUF, right? RUF night. Like that would be pretty cool. Just not at the Hatfields. We'll do that one at one of the student houses. We'll do the bakers. Maybe get remodeling done that way. Mary hears the drum beat. Mary knows this is, this is it. Game is on. Like Jesus is coming. And what I'm asking you to do right now as you sit comfortably in a seat in North America and our lives are pretty well together, can we realize that Jesus is coming and he has come, and his second coming is coming. But in the meantime, the church is to engage in redeeming our world, and Christians are called to go in and to step on the neck of evil. Do you accept that plan? Do you receive that calling? Are you willing to say with Mary, are you willing to tattoo it on your arm, behold, I am the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. Underline that in your Bible. Then talk to Thomas and ask for the Greek version of that. And he will give it to you. And you can have the Greek. So people will say, what is that Greek on your arm? And you will say, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Have you said that to God? Are you afraid to say those words to the Lord? Where are you backing off and closing down and not engaging the stories and the callings that you have. Now, before we move into how you do it, I want to say this. I'm not suggesting that anybody in this room needs to change jobs. There is so much work right where you are. You could just start with naming your family of origin and the people you live with and the people you work with and realize have I been pursuing them well? When that friend tells me they're depressed, I change the subject. Because I don't know how to help. Because I struggle with depression and I can't tell anybody. Stand on the neck of evil. Accept that call. Go in. Let's have a cup of coffee. Tell me more. I want to hear about that. Someone struggling with remembering a, a past hurt, a past death, and mourning, do you move toward those people or do you move away from those people? What are the deflection methods you've developed to keep life at bay? Sarcasm. It's easy. Right? 
Are you willing to not be sarcastic and say, that's actually not funny? I had a friend recently tell me a story, and this friend was laughing, and it wasn't funny. And I said, that's not, that's not funny. Oh, yeah, yeah, it is. No, that wasn't funny. Are you willing to move toward these things? Now, of course, there's bigger plans. There's bigger things you can accept. But I think it begins in our hearts. It begins in our story. It begins in our daily lives. And it ripples out. How do you engage your plan? The last thing we're going to look at. I love this part of the story. The order is critical. Mary receives the plan, point number one, and she's qualified for it because of who Christ is. Point two, she accepts it. May it be, as the Lord says in his word, may it be according to your word. Now she engages the plan by doing what most of us would do prior to accepting the plan. Now she's ready to go, I don't understand the plan. Like, I'm accepting it. I I agree. What is it? And she goes to see her cousin, Elizabeth. Verse 39, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to the town of Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, we watched The Grinch that stole Christmas. It's a Dr. Seuss story, so this is not a spoiler. But at the end, he becomes nice, so sorry. Um, But on his approach to the home that he's been invited to, where he's like ruined their Christmas in his mind and they've forgiven him. He gets to the door and he has shame. He's like, I can't do it. I can't go in. And then his dog convinces him to go in, I think, maybe. I I just picture Mary getting right to that door. I know they don't knock and it's not our doors, but, you know, just an American version of this, like about to ring that doorbell or knock and just thinking, like, here is Elizabeth, who has been six, who's six months pregnant. She's been barren her entire life. She and her husband, the priest, are having John the Baptist. And here I am. I know what my story is. I know what I have. But what if, like, they reject me? What if I walk in and there's some envy? Like, you're young and you're pregnant. What if there's, and she goes in anyway. And in verse 41 And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. That is is one of the most beautiful descriptions that John, in her womb, filled with the Spirit, leaps. And more importantly, babies kick all the time. She could have just said, oh, the baby kicked. She believes and recognizes the reason for that kick is that the Savior has entered the room. And listen to what she says to Mary. Blessed are you among women. Do you think Mary was like, I know. Mary needed to be mothered in that moment. I have a feeling her own parents couldn't handle the story. And she comes into Elizabeth, and Elizabeth looks at her and says, Blessed are you among women. There is no shame. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. And she even goes further. Why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Not only did I feel it 
and by faith I knew it was happening, I'm willing and wanting and glad to tell you, Mary, that this happened for your glory, for your sanctification. You need to hear this. You need to be convinced. And then Elizabeth disciples Mary for three months until she has John. Like, what, how do you engage your plan? You find someone who loves you. You pray that God would bring people into your world, that you can share what's going on, and they will walk with you and look you in the eye and say, you are blessed. Let me name your glory. Let me tell you what God is doing in your life. Let me help you discern what's going on here. She goes, you could go to scripture. I'm sure Zechariah and Elizabeth share with her, although Zechariah would have to write it all on a chalkboard, shares with her this theology. God is using Elizabeth to say, let me tell you who the Messiah is. Even though the angel said all of what he said already, you wonder what she can remember. The trauma of just hearing it and hearing she's a virgin and she's conceiving, Elizabeth has to remind her And what we did not read this morning, but we will end with at the end of our service, or at the next portion of our service, is Mary's song. And before I talk about it, I just want you to know, um, this is the engaging part of the battle. See, I've often read of Mary's, we call it the Magnificat, I often thought of that as um, this kind of spontaneous eruption to what Elizabeth tells her. I think it's the response of discipleship, and I think it's a battle cry. I think Mary left with a song because she was going to doubt over and over again. She was going to keep doubting. All, you, know, you see several times where it says Mary tucked these things away with the shepherds. You see it in our passage. I think God brought to her this song because Mary would be tempted, as all of us are, to forget the truth of the plan that God had called her to. What is your song? How are you taking your story and seeing it tying into the story of God's redemption and meshing together? Are you doing that? And are you singing that to yourself and before the Lord and to others? Now, you don't have to actually sing it, but some of you might. Um, I wanted to just tell you Francis Schaeffer's story again. He... Um, he was a, a pastor, a missionary. He goes overseas, very thoughtful, very intelligent, fairly deep, begins to realize what I say we believe, what I say the church believes, is not happening. It's not happening in my denomination. It's not happening in my local work. And it's not happening in my heart. And he began to doubt. But rather than just doubt and fake it, he decides to step on the neck of evil by naming this doubt and struggling through this doubt. And he begins to go back to the scriptures. He tells his wife, Edith, like, I'm gonna have to go all the way back to my agnosticism, philosophically, and wrestle through all the truths of scripture in order to come to a place where I can actually say I believe this, and he did that. And in that process, he, wrote, he came up with a lecture series called True Spirituality, it's part of his greater works. That was in the 50s. Um, eventually, he started doing those lectures at Labrie uh, in Switzerland. And that's where he founded that ministry, which is a profound ministry. Chuck Colson, 
who was part of Watergate and in prison, came to Christ through the work of Schaefer. And um, we have Schaefer's granddaughter in our church, Abby Seaman. She's not here this morning. She's not feeling well. So talk to Mike and Abby about Schaefer. They love to visit about it. He's like, ah. No, they do. They love to. I always bring up Schaefer, and I just can't. When I first got this job, I mean, like, they're, you know, Schaefer's granddaughter goes to our church. It's like, I can't wait. And she's going to help with administration. So that was fun. We talked about Schaefer. Okay, I want you to hear Schaefer's words. This is the end of his struggle. He says, I searched through what the Bible said concerning reality as a Christian. Gradually, I saw that the problem was that with all the teaching I had received, I had heard little about what the Bible says about the finished work of Christ applied to our present lives. So he's, he's a Christian. He's in ministry. He's gone through seminary. He's got a PhD. He's leading, like, stuff. And he's saying, I don't know that I really connected the dots to the way the finished work of Christ plays out in my present life. When I began to process these things, study Scripture, look at this, listen to how he words it, gradually the sun came out and the song came. And interestingly, even though I had not written poetry for many years, at that time of joy and song, I found poetry beginning to flow again. Do you want that? I want that. I want that music of the gospel. I want to love Jesus so much and know his love for me so much that I would erupt in song even if it's just privately. I probably won't do it publicly. And I want you to hear Mary's song now. And I want you to notice how it starts with her particular setting and her situation and then how it moves toward the rest of us. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. That is not arrogant. That is not selfishness. That is a person realizing they have dignity and glory and honor, and that has been given to them because of the image of God, and you have it too. And when you receive Jesus, and when you walk in him, your glory shines, and it is real. And he said, she continues in verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from the thrones and exalted those of humble estate. So now he's, she's bringing the rest of us in. He has filled the hungry, that is us, with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, the church, right, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. She has grown in her ability to see her story uniting with the story of redemption. That is our calling. That is our plan. Have you accepted that plan? And are you engaging that plan right where you are? Let us pray. Jesus, we praise you that you have called us into your kingdom. But Lord, you have not called us to sit on couches you have called us to engage in your mission. And I think one of the primary means through your scripture, through the church, 
through the Lord's Supper, all these means to show us that we need to believe on you, that we need to begin to write our songs, our battle cries, seeing that our lives have particular importance for your kingdom work, that when Hebrews 11, if that were written at the end of time, our name would come up. Our name would come up. Our glory would show up. The way we served you would be named. The way you've called us to enter that particular battle, to stand on the neck of evil in our particular lives, would be listed in that story. Let us have the faith to know our qualification comes from Jesus, the present application of your blood, that we are righteous not because of what we've done, but because of you, and let that ignite in us a longing to engage the plan of redemption. Amen.